Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast, an independent podcast which is part of the Folklore Network, striving to collect and preserve folklore for future generations. You can hear more about our work at the end of the episode. Today, we go way back into the history of the British Isles to look at some of the island's mythology. Ancient stories of Britain begin between the creation and Noah's flood, in an age when the earliest generation of giants walked the earth. These tales encompass the history of Troy and lead right up to the Norman conquest, as the country fills with tribes from Syria, Troy, Egypt and beyond. The stories are full of magic, faith, rebellion, love, loss and a sense of place. My guest is Dr Amy Jeffs, author of the book Storyland, A New Mythology of Britain, which has been shortlisted for Waterstone's Book of the Year. Amy is an art historian specialising in the Middle Ages, as well as being an accomplished artist herself. She's currently a postdoctoral fellow at the Paul Mellon Centre for Studies in British Art. Amy has worked in the British Library's Department of Ancient, Medieval and Early Modern Manuscripts, and she uses that experience to great effect in her book, which is also illustrated with her own traditional lino-cut and wood-engraved prints. In Storyland, Amy retells many of our old mythological tales, but also provides analysis and interpretation on each one. I spoke to Amy and her recently born baby, who was with her at the time, about the mythology of Britain and her interpretation of it. So, Amy, welcome to the Folklore Podcast and welcome to the small child that you are currently carrying and who might well contribute to this interview later on. We shall see. It's lovely to have you here. It's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me to uh, to join you. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, before we talk about your research and your writing, let's first talk about you. Tell everybody a little bit about yourself and what you do and how you became interested in this subject. Right. Okay. Well, I'm um, I'm an author and an artist living in Somerset. I uh, I grew up with a love of uh, wildlife. I had a family that that knew lots about um, wildlife and trees and plants, and that's that sort of ended up melding with uh, what I went off to do academically after school. Um, I studied early medieval languages and literature and then medieval history of art through to a PhD level. Um, and in my new book, Storyland, A New Mythology of Britain, this kind of love of landscape, um, interest in British landscape and wildlife and medieval history and stories has combined um, so that's that's who I am, and yes, and I I, I specialise in lino cuts, I should say, uh, um, and relief printmaking. Yes, yeah, so, and we'll come on to that in in just a little while, if we may. But but first, let let's talk a little bit about your book, Storyland, which which is it has to be said, whichever way you look at it, a beautiful book, uh, both in terms of its prose and also in terms of its artwork, which, as I say, we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, explain a little bit about what you were setting out to achieve with this book and the ethos behind it. In my academic training, I met all of these sources like the brute myth, this kind of definitive origin history of Britain that was in circulation from about the mid 12th century until the early 16th. And 
and I came to love them as in a completely dry academic way <laughs> and but I then realized that they were absolutely fantastic stories with giants and goddesses and demons that slept with nuns or nuns indeed that slept with demons and um and uh dragons and adventure and I uh I just I wanted to showcase that wonder um you know I'm not the first person to have told some of these stories since the middle ages some of them I don't think have been uh retold since the middle ages some of them are seriously obscure um and it was a real pleasure to to try and present them in a in an accessible way but in a way that was also maybe a stepping stone to additions and translations for people who wanted to find out about these medieval sources that tell us of the history of Britain and its people. Yes because you're not just retelling the stories are you 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 are retelling the stories uh, and then offering your own commentary on them in terms of your research as well. Yes, I think with stories like this, like myth and folklore, they're often seen as somehow separate from serious history. You know, often people will say, well, I don't like political history, but I like social history, or I, I'm more of a political historian. Not a, and I think I'm surely there's just, there's just interesting history and interesting history is the history with stories in it, whether that's a story set on a battlefield or set in someone's parlour. Um, and yes, I wanted to demonstrate the the huge political implications of some of these stories, or at least how they were used politically. They aren't all um, folklore, as we would call it. They are they are shared and um, copied in elite contexts for some um, for the sake of some quite serious political goals, like overlordship of Britain, <laughs> to name one. Um, and so. I think I, I, you know, I wanted to enjoy the wonder of the stories, the marvel of them in the retellings, the sort of magical things that happen in them, the 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 specificity of the landscape, the fact we can visit those places, and then also f explain for readers who were new to the subject um, just how momentous these stories were in, in the Middle Ages and how we still feel their effects. And you refer to the Middle Ages there, but of course you, you split this book into four sections. Um, mm -hmm. so, so very, very early history, and then yeah. prehistory, uh, antiquity, and then the Middle Ages. What do those four different periods of history teach us, and how, how do they differ from each other? Right, so all of the... This whole book is... I imagined kind of cornering somebody with a, a fairly good education in about 1450 and saying, tell me a history of Britain. And this is maybe they might have told something like this. And so I say in the prologue that we need to kind of forget our own view of history, our own chronologies. This is a world with medieval, we've got to look at it with medieval goggles on. We've got uh, a world that has well, this is in, at least from a medi medieval European perspective, no America, no Australia. Um, it's a world that um, it has a biblical timeline. Uh, so it's, you know, a few thousand years old and, um, and the points of, of real importance, things like Noah's flood 
and uh, and then the lives of the prophets through the Old Testament and then the birth of Christ. And in some of these medieval sources set in the deep, deep history of Britain, they will actually flag up those moments. They'll say this is the time in which Elijah was making his prophecies. And so... um, the, I decided to divide it in, into these sections to try and give a sense of that chronology um, and to show where the medieval chronology can kind of map onto our own. Um, but at the same time, it's an alternative. It's a secondary world, secondary world fantasy <laughs> in a way, but a medieval one. Did you have a, a, a period that you particularly enjoy working with out of those mm. four, do you think? Yes. Um, I enjoyed working with, the the prehistory bit and the antiquity bit um were fun because they are they do seem to be even more outlandish the things that can happen um you know i think even by the middle ages there was this sense that in old testament times magic was somehow more present or or super the supernatural there, there isn't a concept of the supernatural versus the natural in the medieval imagination but i think they were aware that they weren't regularly seeing giants in their day and age, but they, but in the deep, um, in, in deep time, giants were uh, very present. So that was a, there was perhaps more, um, I enjoyed the kinds of characters that emerge and the things that they do in that, in that deep period of history. So is there a definite shift between those four periods in the way that people are viewing the world around them and how they're using that in their lives? Uh, yes, because by the by the last period, by the Middle Ages, it's fairly it's not that recent, but it's fairly recent history. I go up to the conquest, uh, the Norman conquest. And um, and while the things that happen in the in the legends set in the Norman conquest are, are not, um, you know, they're not real. They are quite outlandish and, and strange um, that they, these things were written down in the or composed the text that I used was composed in the 14th century so it's only looking a few hundred years back they did have a fairly good idea of who was on the throne there are real historical characters um in the deep history part the characters are almost all legendary mythic characters um and so that's um that's a kind of way it, oh hello <laughs> that's a way it shifts um, as you get closer to the medieval present. Tell me a little bit about your research. You you say that some of these sources are seriously obscure. Um, mm-hmm. What sources are you primarily working with? How accessible are those sources? And, and what can people learn from them? Um, so some of the sources, very accessible, you know, available as Penguin Translations, uh, things like Geoffrey of Monmouth's History of the Kings of Britain. That's a, a story of, of Britain's foundation by a Trojan called Brutus and the legendary kings that follow him. Uh, very familiar figures like King Lear, um, Cymbeline, uh, Cordelia, you know, the, we, we know from Shakespeare. King Arthur is the first sort of full treatment of King Arthur's life. Um, that's that's one you can very easily access. Uh, the same is true for the Scottish... <laughs> origin myths things like john of forden's um chronicle of the scottish nation or things like walter bauer's scotter chronicon um that's another one that's available in translation uh and in fact you know 
it's more about your determination to look for them than it is about real accessibility. So much is now available on archive.org, translations of saints' lives. And the, the, um, all of the primary sources that I use, I've put in the, in the end of the book. Um, you know, I would highly recommend getting yourself a copy of the Norse Poetic Edda, if you don't have one already, a translation by Caroline Larrington. Um, yeah, the, these are all, I, I, I hoped that by, by offering fiction narratives followed by um, quasi-academic commentaries, because I do a bit of travel in them, so it's not strictly uh, academic, and then a reading list at the end. People, if they wanted to, could really become their own experts at this. Uh, there's a kind of heuristic potential. You could step down into the sources and go off on your own adventure, do your own retellings do your own art, whatever you feel like doing or research. So, um, so yes, that was, those are some of the sources. Yeah. Art as well. Tell, tell me a bit about art. You, you use lino cut as a um, method of illustration for this book, which, which you have um, illustrated yourself. Um, but you're basing that on a kind of existing style of artwork from the time to a certain extent, I guess. Is that true? Um, yeah, so it's. I didn't want to do um, uh, the art in a kind of hand-drawn medieval style. I didn't want it to be um, kind of derivative in that way. Uh, but I did definitely take, because I'm an art historian and my PhD was focusing on a, a manus an English manuscript from the second quarter of the 14th century that's full of illustrations I'm very interested in how narrative art works in the mid in the in medieval manuscripts things like the left to right flow of the way characters move on the on in the composition and how if they're having a vision it goes backwards you know the, the, the vision will be behind them in the kind of um, order of appearance so that you know that we're outside of space and time right now we're outside of the of the story or of the what am I trying to say the, the temporal flow of the story um, I was interested in how medieval artists were able to condense um, narrative sequences into a kind of a motif so that you have an iconography. You know, we all we all know about Christian iconographies, things like the crucifixion or the nativity. Um, I was interested in how some of these secular texts, like the brute myth, began to develop their own iconographies in the later Middle Ages in a similar way to the Christian ones. So that was that's the kind of thing I was drawing on. Um, I suppose that lino cut with it, and I used just black ink, so they're monochromatic has some things in common with uh, woodcut from early printed books. So the, the tail end of the Middle Ages uh, before what we tend to call the early modern period. Um, and, and so, but I think also lino cut looks, looks very modern. It looks very contemporary and graphic novel like. Um, it looks a lot like the kind of uh, bold artworks of the, of the late 19th century of the kind of, of Aubrey Beardsley and, um, those kinds of figures so I hoped that with that medium I could could play with a lot of styles and ideas um, and I just liked how it looked as well that was important I didn't want to have the characters obviously from a particular time in medieval art um, artists will often show 
characters from stories set in the deep, deep past in contemporary dress with the most up-to-date armour, you know, and the most up-to-date trebuchet. Um, and I wasn't really interested in putting um, these mythic characters in, in today's costume. Um, so I, I tend to show them as silhouettes or nude or, or with just something very generic, like a fur collar or a tunic. <laughs> yes, I was going to say, you, you did draw attention in the book to the fact that that was a very definite decision on your part. Mm. So they're, they're not recognisable as any one person or one type of person or, or necessarily even, I suppose, genderized at times as well. Yeah, I think the joy of myth is that, you know, yes, it's it's vaguely set in a in a time, uh, but also it's not, it's 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 fantasy and so it can be it can stand for anyone and anything and any time and so I wanted people to engage with the the um, universal human scenarios that are being played out in these stories things like a mother's grief when her sons hate each other um, or uh, the the sadness of being discriminated against just because of your gender for instance and so um yeah these are I felt as though that one way to engage people with these stories was to was to home in on their on on the amazing um very human situations that the that they explore yeah I mean the the these mythologies are, you know, they're set in definite time periods, but as you say, they are timeless, essentially, due to the fantasy nature of them. Mm. How are they relevant in a modern world, then? And is it because of that kind of timeless nature, do you think? I think that stories that we enjoy are relevant all the time you know it's basically always relevant to be entertained by stories i i think you know you can you can analyze and and pull out themes you there's there are powerful themes of migration powerful themes of um gender and identity i mean there's uh, the climate uh, issue is and landscape is is huge um you know i came to see the giants of albion who who feature prominently in the first few chapters um I came to see them as somehow standing for the power of nature and those those Trojan um, colonizers or settlers who who destroy them as being a bit like you know what we're doing to wild places and the, the giants kind of jealously guard the land and in the medieval texts they're sort of an, they are antagonistic but I couldn't help be quite fond of them as much as they're also terrifying. Um, and, and not being quite, I think maybe some of the the clear moral lessons that that exist in the medieval versions of the text are no longer as clear to us now, and that makes an interesting challenge, um, and you know, an, another way of looking at a familiar world, a way of making our world strange. Yes, yes, absolutely. There's been a real resurgence of interest lately um, in folklore and in mythology and in those those kinds of themes your book has has proved hugely successful it's been shortlisted for the waterstones book of the year um why do you think there has been this big resurgence of interest in these themes and um what part do you think 
Storyland is playing within that, perhaps? Yeah, I don't know. It's a really good question, and I it's not. I'm, you know, I I don't feel qualified to 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 give some broad answer like, well, you know, we all feel like we are losing our sense of identity, and we want to be anchored again in in the deep stories of our part. Maybe it's something like that, but maybe we've always felt unstable. I don't think that's ever been something. We, there's been no you know no time we've all gone about. We've made it. Um, I wonder if it's because. Um, myth has been retold in very imaginative and inspiring ways in recent decades by people like um, Margaret Atwood and Madeline Miller. And um, yeah, I think, you know, Pat Barker, I think that, um, that, 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 that just inspiration and the kind of new angles and the, the potential for fresh perspectives is maybe enough to justify it. Um, and I don't know why, you know, Storyland, there was this model being put forward with the Greek myths and the Greek retellings uh, by so many authors at the moment and being done so beautifully. And it just sort of it emerged very organically as I was, produce, I was producing the lino cuts while writing up my PhD. And they just occurred, it occurred to me that they'd make lovely illustrations to a book. And, and as I had seen that other authors were doing something like that with stories from other cultures, then... It just, you know, that that puts wind in your sails, and you know, it's a it's a huge question, and um, and I don't have a definitive answer, but those are some some reflections. But but you you have, as I say, enjoyed this success. So so is that wind going to stay in your sails now? Do you think? <laughs> I mean, you you obviously have many things to juggle at the moment. A small <laughs> person that you're currently juggling, and and you know various other things. Um, are you going to carry on doing more of the same with your writing? I, if I could just do this until the end of my days, <laughs> I would. All the while, I am able to, um, and there is appetite for it, and there is a community of people doing similar things to get inspiration from and share ideas with. And you know, I will definitely carry on. There are there are book projects on the horizon that will be um, announced in the coming weeks and months and that's really exciting uh they are um inhabiting a similar sort of world uh there's and with and i'll be doing artworks for them too and um and i hope that that uh well i know that i will be um exploring britain and beyond uh to, to keep rooting those stories in in landscapes and places we can visit now i think that's quite important so while whilst people are waiting for those announcements and various other things, they will hopefully, if they haven't already read your book, go and do so. It is available from all good bookshops and libraries and all sorts of other places too. If they want to find out more about you and your, your other stuff, have you got an online presence that they should be seeking out? I do, yes, please. Um, it would be lovely to, to, um, to tap into the folklore crowd um, through Twitter. My handle is... Amy underscore Historia. That's the Latin for history. Um, and my Instagram is Historia underscore Prince. Um, I also have a website where I put um, uh, my artwork, uh, which I have done other projects talking about this. Um, and uh, yeah, that's it. But um, it would be great to, to encounter listeners online. 
Brilliant. I will put links on the webpage for this episode to all of those places so that people can go and find you and chat about your work. Uh, in the meantime, Amy and associated small person, thank you for your contributions <laughs> too. It's been lovely to have you on and we're going to close this episode by listening to an extract from Storyland, which your publishers have very kindly provided me with. So thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Prologue The tales to come are gilded by the rays of the setting sun. Written down and recited in a territory once believed to be at the westernmost edge of the world, their audiences also held themselves to be the last to witness the end of each day. To live in Britain then was to possess an edginess, a brinkhood, unknown to the great eastern citizens whose homes occupied the centre of the map. Yet myths drew threads across the globe and across time. The idea of Britain, what it was and where it came from, its connection to distant lands and its own native qualities, fascinated its inhabitants then as it does now. Accounting for the mysteries of its coincidence of place and people produced the wondrous myths and legends that you are about to hear. From stories of warlike giants and necromancers, to the familiar adventures of Arthur, Merlin and King Lear. For centuries these tales moulded perceptions of Britishness. They still do, even if many have been forgotten. Storyland began with pictures. As an academic, I had been studying medieval illustrations of the Brute Chronicle, the origin myth of Britain, in illuminated manuscripts, and wanted to try my hand. In 2018, I encountered the perfect medium. Linocut. Linocut is a form of relief printmaking, as are wood engraving and woodcut. Relief printmaking can teach you to draw in light in the golden hour of low sun when shadows are long. You carve away your design and roll ink onto the raised surface, finally pressing the block onto paper. Print technology, most notably movable type, arrived at the end of the European Middle Ages and marks the close of the heyday of the manuscript or handwritten book. While it might seem counterintuitive to illustrate medieval stories in print, which was alien to most of the period, the medium simultaneously evokes the medieval and the modern. It can evoke the pages of Winkin de Werder's late medieval edition of Le Mort d'Arthur and the modernism of the early 20th century. I started with a series of three illustrations, The Death of Gogmagog, Diana Sends Brutus to Albion, and Merlin Guiding the Building of Stonehenge. Three grew to seven, and then twenty-four, as I was given the opportunity to publish them in Country Life magazine as a trio of articles about the myths and legends of Britain. Designing the prints and conducting the research gave rise to the audiobook you are now listening to. The way we imagine the Middle Ages is often affected by the Victorian aesthetic influence. This is something I wanted to undermine. The late medieval armour, pointed shoes and flowing sleeves of so many pre-Raphaelite paintings of Arthur and his court represents a period of dress that considerably post-dates the writing down of the earliest Arthurian myths, which themselves were written down long after the time in which they are set, around the 5th century AD. So how should one go about representing the characters of a mythic age? When medieval artists of, say, the 14th century illustrated these legends, 
they updated the costume and technologies according to their own setting. When it came to imagining the past, the Middle Ages was a time of unconcerned anachronism. There wasn't such a sense of the look of the past, of costume evolving over time. The stories were personal and morally instructive. Readers were meant to identify with them. And while I didn't like the idea of illustrating these stories with people in 21st century dress, I did like the idea of avoiding historic specificity, the idea of transforming the characters into timeless archetypes. For this reason, I have shown figures as silhouettes or nude, or in the most generic, bland costume I could imagine, while capitalising on all the drama and emotion of their actions and experiences. I hope this brings the images into a world that feels at once contemporary, human and natural. I hope also that it places more emphasis on setting and experience rather than time. The landscape is the one consistent presence, after all. Here I offer you a story of an empty land filling with tribes from Syria, Troy, Egypt and Scythia, until it becomes a Britain you will recognise. You are entering a work of legend, based on medieval tales of Britain's foundation and settlement that bear only a passing resemblance to true history, but offer many other kinds of truths. I am not going to attempt to separate all the fact from fiction. You will encounter gory saints' lives, the haunting legends of the Welsh Mabinogion, the disturbing, enchanting tales of the South English legendary, as well as Germanic legends of Wayland the Smith and Havelock the Dane. These tales are more than words on parchment or paper. Moments from them were also carved into stone, ivory, and the wooden furniture of churches, painted into books and onto the plaster of domestic walls, woven into wall hangings, and stitched onto linen. This is a journey through Britain and through time. Many of the places described here can be visited. Many of the stories include and account for monuments, landmarks, and natural features that survive to this day. They are sacred places, beautiful and unexpected, and while they are too many to list here, they include prehistoric monuments like Stonehenge and Wayland Smithy, towns like Grimsby and Leicester, mountain ranges and lakes such as Snowdonia and Lochetiv, and rivers including the Ness, the Saw, and the story-silted Thames. In the commentaries accompanying the retellings, I will introduce you to some of the primary sources I've used and the circumstances of those sources' medieval production and influence. I have looked for stories that have political implications, as well as their complement of marvels. While folklore no doubt lies behind some of the tales, it is not the focus of this book. Similarly, while I have touched on Irish legends that, in turn, touch on Britain, I have not presumed to represent the wealth of Irish mythological material with this narrative. These are separate, if contingent, traditions. As for the stories that do feature, you may notice a bias towards the deep past of the British, as opposed to that of the Scottish and English. The impact of the brute tradition, the origin myth of the British, of which you will hear hereafter, was far-reaching, and the same kind of material was not produced in a consolidated way in Scotland until the later Middle Ages. One explanation is that the Britonic Celts arrived on these islands much earlier than anyone else, 
and represented, especially to later settlers, a kind of indigenous presence whose stories could be used to the advantage of those in power. In the spirit of legend, it is time to shed modern views of universal chronology. Forget dinosaurs, forget evolution, forget the elusive Neanderthals. These are for a later age. Here, the story follows the medieval view of time, shaped by classical and biblical traditions. We start between creation and Noah's flood, in an age when the earliest generation of giants, the children of Cain, or the progeny of fallen angels, walk the earth. Then we proceed to the age of the Exodus, the Trojan War, and on until the birth of Christ, the Anno Domini, closing with the Norman conquest of England. Writing in 1336, a historian from medieval England called Geoffrey Le Baker believed he was living 6,445 years after the creation of the world. He dated the flood to 2,865 BC and the foundation of Britain to 1,300 BC. But exact numbers were matters to debate even then. This is the misty temporality of Storyland. It is also time to shed modern notions of geography. Medieval world maps showed a circle divided into three unequal parts, surrounded by a ring of ocean. Asia fills the whole upper half of the map. East rather than north is at the top, with paradise located at the uppermost edge and Jerusalem in the centre. Beneath it is a band of sea in the shape of an L turned upside down. That sea which sits at the middle of the earth is the Mediterranean. The short stroke of the L separates Asia from Europe and Africa, which are in turn divided by the long stroke of the L. To find the territories of Hibernia, a Latin name for Ireland used in its origin myth, and Britain, you would look to the very edge of Europe, the lower left-hand corner of the map. Members of these great civilizations were held by inhabitants of medieval Britain to have travelled from the east long ago and have seeded new dynasties in these chilly but fertile climes. I have retold the stories within a medieval temporal and spatial framework, but in a manner that I hope will feel relevant to a modern audience. Today we are learning the limitations of our power over the natural world. We are learning within that about how we relate to each other, and we have the opportunity to address our own mistakes and those of our forebears. These stories are grounded in genuine medieval narratives, but some elements are of my own invention. They pay greater attention than in most of the original sources to figures who are neither men nor kings, to characters' interior worlds and to the landscape. My illustrations, too, might take their subjects from the past, but their style and emphases belong to today. All this I have committed to these pages within the bounds of my own understanding, and any mistakes are my own. May Storyland be a stepping stone into the powerful medieval mythscape, and perhaps beyond, to the rich seam of primary sources that have by some miracle survived. At the end of the print edition of this audiobook, you will find a list of all the texts on which I have depended and frequently cite, translated by a panoply of dedicated scholars, including Caroline Larrington, Jane Bliss, Sinead Davies, Rachel Bromwich, and the late Richard Sharp. Their patiently applied skill, 
means that any English speaker can now read these wonderful texts. I hope you are inspired to do so, if you haven't already. Because it retells and reimagines old stories for modern audiences, Storyland is a new mythology of Britain. I have written and decorated it for you, wherever you come from, and wherever you are going. It was great to speak to Amy and her plus one, and my thanks go both to her and to her publisher River Run Books for clearing some of the audio version of Storyland for this episode. You can pick up a copy of Storyland from all good online and offline book retailers. Do support your local bookshop if you're able. The Folklore Podcast is an independent podcast aiming to collect and preserve folklore materials for the future, alongside other projects such as the Folklore Library and Archive and the Folklore Network. Find out more about all of our work on our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Please tell your friends about our content and share our posts and episodes in whatever online spaces you use. You can follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod and we're also on Instagram and Facebook. We try to avoid adverts in our shows to keep to the topics in hand, but this does come at a cost. If you want to help us continue, please visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com support where you can find links to our Patreon page and other information or buy a book or two or some other bits and pieces from our online folklore shop, again at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>